And that was my sliding doors moment where suddenly I realised, hey, there's a part of the finance industry that's trying to use money for good rather than for evil. And, and clients, there's people out there that are prepared to invest their money and use their banking arrangements and everything to actually drive change and do good in the world. And I'm like, holy, holy hell, that's, that's my two worlds combined. <laughs> Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Stuart Barry. Stuart is an environmentalist, philanthropist and is an award-winning financial advisor. He is a public speaker and owner of a successful Tasmanian business specialised in retirement planning for professionals using ethical and green investments. He has also volunteered his time to serve on seven boards across a range of social and environmental issues. After 33 years working in the global financial markets, Stuart realised he was not aligning his values and his actions, but actively participating in a system that was causing permanent damage to the environment. Through travel, family and soul searching, Stuart was able to leave the high paying job and life in the fast lane for a more simple life in Hobart. Stuart's journey is incredible and illustrates the power we have as individuals to make choices that make us happy and are not a burden on our planet. Stuart is the author of The Rich Greenie. In his book, he combines his decades of financial expertise with his love for the planet. He is dedicated to educating and empowering people who care about how they can use the power of their finances to live a rich life and continue their great efforts to save the planet while enjoying a high standard of living. I'm so excited to bring you this conversation today. Not only is it full of wisdom, insight and storytelling, but Stuart unpacks some of the practical actions each and every one of us can take to have a more positive relationship with our planet. So without further delay, I bring you Stuart Barry. Stuart, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. For those of us that maybe don't know much about you, Stuart, could you give yourself a bit of an introduction, a bit of a biography of your, I guess, professional and, and personal career? I guess uh, the way I often describe myself is I'm a creature of the finance industry, which is not a positive. <laughs> I've spent, uh, well, it's... More than 35 years in the finance industry, so that's the uh, professional background. It's uh, yeah, been my whole career and uh, worked both uh, many, many cities in Australia as well as internationally before seeing the light, um, stepping back from that uh, fast-paced work life and uh, moving to little old Hobart uh, with my wife at the time and uh, we've had a family since then and doing the tree change in Tassie and, and just loving it. So that's the quick potted history of uh, <laughs> my career and how and family life. Yeah, yeah. So you you mentioned that you started in finance. What what was your what was the first moment that you had where you realised finance might be a pathway for you? Did that happen at school or university or in your twenties? What stage were you interested in that? Well, I've always been interested in numbers and uh, and money, actually both. Um, so. At school, um, without exaggeration, I chose, when it got to the point where you could choose your own subjects, I, I chose every subject possible that maximised the probability that I'd be working with numbers and formulas and minimised the chance of me actually doing anything to do with English or essays. <laughs> so I've always had that personality type. And from a money point of view, I've always been a, 
uh, my personality type's always uh, is a saver. Uh, my grandmother was shocked um, when I got to 16 or 17. I had every dollar she'd ever given to me for my birthday or Christmas in, still in the passbook and still accumulating. Yes, it was my core personality, so it matched me fairly well going into finance. And uh, yeah, I ended up starting in the in the banking in banking, and just went from there. It's great to have, uh, I guess, uh, a skill and a passion combining their numbers and money. I, I guess a lot of us love money and aren't very good with our numbers and budgeting and, and others probably good with their numbers and, and maybe, you know, just looking at the spendings going out the door. So were your parents into the in the banking or finance industry? Was that an influence on you? Um, funny enough, I am a third generation banker. I, I wasn't in banking that long, but my grandfather... My father and then myself uh, ended up in banking. My dad worked for the predecessor of the ANZ Bank for 49 years, and my grandfather was his whole career in the bank as well. I, I, I don't think that actually influenced me when I look back on it, but it did lead to my dad being worried when I'd finished uh, school that I was going to just bum around and hang around the beach uh, for years. And um, he rang up a bank and got me an interview. And in so he was actually responsible for my first job, but I hadn't seen that as a goal that I'd work for a bank at any stage, but perhaps it was inevitable looking back in hindsight. And you mentioned that you were a creature of the finance industry and then saw the light eventually. What was that pathway in finance? What were some of the key takeaways that you took from the finance industry? What were the positives? What were the negatives that you found in your career? Well, for me, it was a bit bit torn actually being in the finance industry. One part of it, uh, my brain I absolutely loved it. I loved the challenge and the clarity when you're when you're in finance and managing money was what I did most of my career. Um, I, I really enjoyed the clarity about you could go home every day, every week, every month, every year, and know how you went against the market. And I really liked that. Suck in a lot of information, process it, put trades on to reflect that. So you got clarity, focus, and you could be really you know many driven individuals in the industry, including myself. So I liked that part of it. The aspect that was never sat right with me was that I was sort of, I've always been a, a greenie and environmentalist at heart, um, passionately so, and I was always the only guy in the room who lived those kind of values. So m- Monday to Friday, I'd be out there just raping and pillaging with everyone else to maximise profit at any cost, effectively. Uh, and then on, I'd be riding to work and on weekends, um, bushwalking and doing things like that. And I was the only guy in the room who was doing that. And they always saw me as odd. The odd person out because it tends to be the finance industry is very full of ultra right wing capitalist uh, style thinkers, and uh, so I was very I was the odd guy out. So that was it was always something that didn't sit well with me. So yeah, it was sort of part of my thinking about uh, where's this going to go long term. I often find that you know when I think of rich or money or finance, I often think of those negative connotations that come along with that. You know, the Wolf of Wall Street style characters, profits at all costs, big business, big corporations that are basically you know trying to find profit over people at, at the end of the day, over the environment, and that's something that comes to mind. But but I do often waver between that sort of extinction rebellion side of things that is about you know not just changing not just fighting for our planet but fighting against capitalism changing the system system change not climate change versus working with the system we have to work with good people doing investing in in wise and and i guess environmentally and people friendly ways to make the world a better place 
before you moved to Hobart and, and you know, maybe changed, I guess, some of the businesses and, 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 you know, environments you were working with, before you moved and shifted your values entirely, were you trying to make more ethical changes within that right-wing sort of financial industry at all? Or was that impossible? I never saw it was an option, actually. So I, I what you mentioned Wall Street. Like I really, I was a 1980s yuppie, and I wanted, and I was really left. I left home in the mid 80s, and I wrote a book called The Rich Greenie a couple of years ago. And this is kind of the opening part to the book: is that I, I aspired to be a yuppie and to be the wolf of Wall Street. Um, it's really sad. I look back on it with embarrassment now, but. I really did. And I left home to go for a job up in Brisbane. Explicitly, I said to my parents, I'll be back driving a Porsche. Um, you know, that, that was the, I thought that was the meaning of life. And that would, by just being driven by money, that would uh, uh, somehow bring happiness. Um, and the industry is, it's not stereotypically, they, it, the industry is driven by that. Even today, with the rise of more ethical finance, it's a niche part of the industry. And there's very few people in the Australian markets now, which I only know, um, that are actually truly interested and passionate about money for for good rather than money for money's sake. So it's still, whilst the industry's changing, it's it's glacial. There's so there's so few individuals that are uh, switched onto that as a percentage of the total industry. So it's still got a long, long way to go. So, yeah. I often think of incentives. I often think of individuals are just, you know, highly evolved apes in a way that, you know, we've got our base needs. We've got, uh, we're, we're interested in in what incentives are put in front of us. And oftentimes we just end up thinking about ourselves. And I don't think there's anything intrinsically evil with that. Uh, and often people that do that are, especially on the left, are seen as those, you know, ivory tower, evil folk that just eating away the world as they get richer. But I, I actually think that the incentives lean that way if you want to have a nice house if you want the nice car as you suggested if you want to and oftentimes it's maybe supporting family or having that beautiful holiday that you couldn't have as a kid yourself that you want to take your kids away to Paris every couple of years or whatever it might be and that seems like what's wrong with that what's wrong with that goal but you said it yourself that you're embarrassed sort of looking back at I guess almost what we've been fed as a capitalist society as a society that looks to finance, to lift everyone. You know, there's going to be some people at the top that are lifted higher than others, but with the trickle-down model that we're often told works, what's the problem with it? I, I just, that there's a bit of a clash with personal incentives and individuals wanting that freedom and, and wanting to excel versus it's actually quite damaging. Can you try and balance that for me? And, and did those ideas ever, did you ever struggle with that moment of saying, can I be someone that's really successful as an individual while also not not damaging as much as um, the people around me are? Boy, there's a lot in that. On the incentives, or, or you call it incentives, so in the finance industry when you say incentive, we always, we always just think of our huge bonuses. So at that level, there's the bonus type incentives, there's the way that we li- try to live our lives type incentives that you're touching on there too, Matthew. And then there's the incentive to try and balance the everything. So there's kind of the three the three areas, I think, in your question there. To go just to the finance industry bonus thing, that it, the incentives in the industry are, are totally misaligned to good planetary, social, environmental outcomes. So 
My first job managing money, um, so foreign currency dealing, derivatives dealing, uh, I would have been 22, perhaps 23. At that point, uh, so you've got a 23-year-old managing hundreds of millions of dollars of money uh, with my personal responsibility, and the incentives were all structured around very significant bonuses to beat the average person and the and maximum time period taken into account for that incentive was 12 months, but it would often be three or six months. So you've got 23-year-old, and I wasn't the only one in the room doing this, so everyone was doing it and still are. Very young, at the time, mainly guys, some women, very young guys, testosterone-driven on huge financial incentives with very short time periods of measurement they will never take into account social or planetary impacts of anything they're financing or making profit from with that kind of model. So the incentives made it actually impossible, even if you wanted to. If you wanted, you could pick from buying company A or company B. If company A made um, sneakers using child labour in Brazil um, and therefore made more profit versus company B that did it properly, um, you'd always pick company A and you'd, you'd give you'd back them because that's where you got your 12-month profit. So very bad setup as a system for the money to go in the right direction, very poor. And the incentives in the industry are still very short-term focused. Uh, they're stretching out, but it's still only in, in terms of a couple of years max. Um, so you've got people now, there was recently on the news someone from AMP that was uh, docked a quarter of his bonus for inappropriate behavior um that was five hundred thousand dollars it was only a quarter of his bonus mm. um so you can see the kind of numbers in the industry now and that will drive inappropriate behavior when they're not able to be structured in a way that aligns with um what we are out here in uh, living our lives would like to see with our society and planet um so that's that first level of incentive which is still poor um the second one in terms of the way we live our lives is uh, really deep, but we, I made the mistake and many of us make the mistake that the goal of life is to get a huge pile of cash, get to a, some sort of retirement point, and then you'll have a huge, an incredibly happy life because you've got a bigger pile than other people in your neighbourhood. That's messed up in so many ways. Um, one is that when you look at studies about what brings a, a truly happy life, and there's been books written, you know, talking to people that are dying, things like that, they're all consistent. And that it's not how big your pile of money is. None of them say that. Money delivers uh, happiness to a certain point of security where you have a roof over your head and some level of security for you and your family. Beyond that, it does very little. So happiness is about uh, family, friends, and meaningful activity of which one subset is work. Now, if you sacrifice family and friends for the big pile of money, that's where people end up with multiple marriages, mistresses, things like this, destroy the quality of life and the quality of the life of their uh, children as well. Um, so they can spiral out of control in, in terms of that approach of money. Money, The big pile of money is going to bring me happiness. It's totally off track. And going for that big pile of money and working the 23 hours a day and all of that kind of stuff to drive that, sacrificing everything else, also comes at a huge social and planetary cost because when we're working intensely, just driven by money, we will do whatever it takes at work to get ahead uh, at whatever cost, regardless of what that means. You know, I'm going to make more 
bonus because I suggest that to the company that we tip all the asbestos over the back fence rather than bury it appropriately or whatever the thing is at the time. That drives, so it drives those kind of actions at work, totally unethical behaviour on behalf of the corporation. But it, um, it also it hurts the planet because when we're living that fast-paced life, that's where we end up doing the fast food, the fast holidays, the fast everything. So we rush off, jet off to somewhere for our intense two-week holiday, high carbon, high high price, and probably low happiness value because we need to do everything really fast-paced. We can't do hobbies that bring us happiness as well. So it, it eats into all of our lives by having that incentive, if you like, to to have a big pile of money. So it really hurts us as individuals and it hurts the planet hugely as well so uh the the whole way we think about things is is off track and yeah in the way the capitalist system works because us as humans are are driving that way and our behaviors drive that way the flow of money works that way too so it works against us as a society because it's going for the short-term gains and it works against the planet as well so it's it's really problematical at all at, at those three levels so lots of big problems to unpack and solve if we're going to make a, a real difference to how we act as a society in the future. You mentioned earlier that you're going to come back with a Porsche. Did you get your Porsche? No, I saw the light. It was so lucky. I never – I got to the point where I got to know myself well enough that I never stepped up and did that. Yeah, I, I, luckily, I could have so easily gone down that path and still been – in the industry earning tremendous amounts of money but probably deeply unhappy inside myself and with lots of toys that would have counted for nothing when I was lying on my deathbed looking back on my life. What was it that allowed you to see the light then? What was it, you mentioned bushwalking and and riding to work, was it that attachment to nature? Was it a group of friends that you had? Was it where you were living? What was it that actually allowed you to see the light when so many others had their toys and had their mistresses and and have their pile of money but probably don't have the happiness. Why specifically did you, do you think, have that, you know, awakening in a way? Um, It was, I I think probably the catalyst was, so I had that dual life as we talked about before, and the catalyst probably was in meeting my future wife. Um, We met trekking in Nepal, just happened to be walking the same days on the same track and got chatting each night and, you know, there was a, instant attraction there and she ended up joining me uh, I was working in Korea at the time in Seoul um, very intensely and she joined me there for about a year and my contract was coming to a conclusion 2003 and we decided yes this is right we'll get we, we're going to get married and start a family and it was really that that I that I just thought well working this fast-paced lifestyle just wasn't conducive to having a happy family life because they would never have seen me. They could have paid the bills easily, but I would have been a totally absentee absentee dad. And that didn't sit well with me. And that's where the crunch time came. And I thought, I'm going to have to, you know, a highly prioritised family. I, I really wanted that happy family life. I just thought the time has come to take the risk and step back from the career that I loved. But didn't match where I wanted my future life to be. I wanted a happy family and time to be a great dad and and doing it, working a job in Asia, fast paced wasn't going to match. So yeah, that was the catalyst, meeting Rosie and deciding to have a family. And we made the decision then to that I would ditch the career 
we there wasn't a game plan after that decision. <laughs> um, I talked her into I'd done some cycle touring before, so putting your bags on your bike and doing long distance rides. I rode across from, from Canada to Mexico in the mid nineties and loved it. And uh, so I talked Rosie into doing that as well. Um, we took best part of a year off and rode around Europe. So we we uh, yeah, spent about eight months riding around Europe. Of course, she loved it because um, we were able to keep going. And the grand plan was that I'd spend that time coming up with this wonderful idea as to where we should live. We knew we were going to live in Australia to start a family, but we'd just think about where we're going to live and I was going to think about the second career. Of course, we got the end of the cycle tour and I had no idea <laughs> what I would be doing as that second dog. I just knew we'd had a great time. So Rosie's from Tasmania. I'm from Melbourne originally. Um, we chose Tasmania because in the absence of any job ideas of this sort, okay, we'll just go to, I'd ridden around Tasmania, previously loved it, and just thought, well, let's make a start here and, and see what happens. So, yeah, long and windy track to get here, but it was, yeah, meeting Rosie and then that bike tour and then ending up in Tasmania sort of set up for the second stage, but without actually too much of an idea what to do. Yeah, I, I love this in, in, I guess, the two parts of, of life, and I want to stick in part one for a little bit. What was your daily schedule? What was a, what did a year look like when you were at your busiest in your, in the finance industry? What I know sometimes to ask about money is a, a rude thing, but sort of what sort of money are we looking at? And then what are we looking at in terms of your day and your quality of life? And then how did you actually say, I'm going to take a fair chunk of time off here to, as you said, travel from North America to Central America and likewise with the Himalayas? You know, how did you find the time to do that as well as having that high-paced, high-octane sort of life in the finance industry and career? Yeah, the um, the Himalayas was a very much a squashing in between that intense life. So it happened actually because of my intense work life. I was working in Hong Kong. I received a promotion to go to Korea, and I knew that the job in Korea would be even more intense than my Hong Kong job, which was already totally intense. And I just thought, gee, when I take this job, I'm not going to be able to breathe for years. So I'm going to take a two, in between those two, literally finishing in Hong Kong, I took two weeks off, flew to Nepal and just did this trek and then flew back to Hong Kong, picked up my bag and went to Korea. So it was just a quick squash in because of the intensity and my love of walking. I figured I wasn't going to see that for a while. So I was still on the track of, you know, the job prioritisation. So that's where Nepal was able to be squashed in. Yeah, Korea was intense at every level it was a it was a joint venture between a dutch company and a local korean bank who, similar to the commonwealth bank of australia in korean terms it was an investment company so we managed money on behalf of mum and pop korea the company was losing in the previous year had lost 15 million us i was going in there in a company with uh, so just to describe some of the issues so in terms of the intensity yes yeah, so massive losses a joint venture between a dutch and korean company which in itself is incredibly difficult in terms of different cultures. I uh, walked into an office of 35 people, of which two spoke English, and I didn't speak any Korean. And a six-day work week in Korea at the time, and uh, high expectations from the Dutch parent. Incredibly difficult about legal and partnership relationship. So it was 10 out of 10 for difficulty and challenge and intensity. And that first 12 months or so, I worked seven days a week, lived ate, breathed work and loved it. But uh, it was, yeah, very, very intense and the most intense, my, you know, it, it, 
my last job in, in the finance industry at that level and also the most intense. But it was very, very successful as well. So it was a lot of, I got a lot of satisfaction by the success of the firm, which made it easy for me to finish too, going back to that, because I felt I was finishing on a high point that would have been hard to replicate what we'd pulled off in Korea. But um, yeah, the money was, because of the sums were so big, the money was also very attractive from a personal level. So we were, I was responsible for managing 12 billion US dollars of uh, investments in that job. And also halfway through the job, the company also asked, asked me to run their Japanese operations. So not only was I doing this intense job in Korea, I also then had to start commuting to Tokyo and taking over a team, responsibility for a team there. So it was um, just in case I didn't have enough to do, I did that also. <laughs> so high intensity, the salary was appropriately high for that as well. So, you know, um, even though that's nearly 20 years ago now, it's still multiples of what the Prime Minister of Australia is paid today with bonuses above 100% of your salary, so double. Um, so very high reward, high intensity, high pressure environment. You loved it. You loved the job, but you probably knew that it wasn't sustainable for you. At this point in time, you know, with that move to Tasmania, had you, and you, and you were sort of, after that European adventure, still unsure of where you were going to go, was it just, I know I'm not going to get back in this sector or was it, I want to make amends in a way of, of maybe some of the choices I've made in the finance industry? What, what was the thinking that was going on with you? Was it on a personal level or a social level or just simply a family level that you were really um, focused on at the time? Yeah, unfortunately, I hadn't seen the amends part of it at that point. Um, so it wasn't going there with the game plan as to how to use my finance skills to help good organisations at that point. It was just very much about the tree change and the family values, the so prioritising family first was was the the decision, not anything else that sort of came about later. So the first two years we were here, uh, my wife worked, she was a teacher. She worked whilst pregnant um, with our first two kids and um, I did a bit of consulting back to the old firm. But I, I, I really still struggled to know what I was going to do with myself at that point. So it was quite a much longer journey than I imagined. Um, the only thing I came back with absolute certainty about was that I wanted to have my own business because I, I thought, well, I've worked at the really high end of the corporate life and you always, when, when it, no matter what size company you work for, you always think you can do better than the boss, or I always did anyway. <laughs> and I thought, well, it'd be really cool to actually have a go myself, whether for success or failure, to have that second stage of my life where I actually do it, have my own business, back myself, and see how I can go when I'm the one who has to call all the shots rather than work within a corporate environment. So I knew I wanted to do that, and that was the extent of what I knew. And I just did some consulting back um, to pay the bills. As an aside, I got very, very lucky during that two-year period in that one of my remaining corporate goals for my career was that I was desperate to work in India because um, it's my favourite country. I, I travelled there a bit. And uh, always, and the company I worked for at the time had an operations in India and I'd, I'd had a little bit to do with them. And I, I just thought, boy, I'd, I'd love to work in India. So I got this. I was at home two years just doing, you know, a little bit of consulting here and there. And I got a call from a colleague I used to work with in Korea. And he said, hey, I'm now CEO of our Indian operations. And uh, we've been, the regulator has said to us, you don't have an investment expert as part of your team. Um, we're going to shut you down unless you do something about it. And he said, would you come over? work for us for three months, set up the investment team, find a good local and then leave. 
And I'm like, oh, my God, this is this gift back from the finance universe, the one thing I hadn't done. So I was desperately desperate for my wife to get home from work that day. And I'm like, honey, um, I've just had the most amazing phone call. How would you feel about, and she was heavily pregnant uh, at the time, how would you feel about if I just disappeared to India for three months? And she knew that it had always been such an amazing goal of mine that to my internal gratitude, she said, absolutely, that's something you've got to do. So I went and did that as um, one of these last gifts from the universe and had the best time. And Rosie came and joined me for the final month of the three months uh, with our first child, uh, one years old and heavily pregnant with number two. And we flew back to Tasmania the very last day she was allowed to step on a plane with the extent of her pregnancy. So it was a wonderful uh, just side bonus from my time in the finance industry. I want to touch on travel as an instigator into some maybe the way you thought and, and way you wanted to live your life because I've often speak to people that are worldly in a way that they have a greater sense of interconnection with our planet and our actions, that our actions actually impact the whole world, not just our neighbourhood, not just our families, but, you know, the plastic bottle that you drink out of from the supermarket in Melbourne you may end up at a beach in India or whatever it might be, uh, you know, and where our money goes. And I guess being on the global markets as well, you see that the transition of money across the world and just how free it flows uh, as well, you know, we are in a global international world. But oftentimes we see, and you mentioned it before, the fast travel, going to a resort, you don't leave the, the pool you have your cocktails, you're, pre, you're drunk the whole time, basically, at the pool, enjoying your time, but you're not learning anything. You, it's just basically a weather change and a free massage or whatever it might be. But you have talked about actually having meaningful travel and having slow travel. What do you think the benefits are of, of travel and of slow travel? And are there a couple of stories or, or takeaways you can share with us today? Um, travel... I and my wife Rosie and now us as a family, we are heavily travel addicted. So it's a, we could talk on this for weeks, I think, Matthew. But we've always, uh, before we met even, um, we both had a passion for travelling in developing countries, uh, really being with at local level, local communities, meeting real people. Neither of us are interested in the go to New York and spend two weeks in New York kind of travel. So uh, that has gone down to a level of now our well, our family very very into travel so we we groomed our children entirely out of self-interest to be cyclists so we slowly counted down the years until our children were old enough to uh, we thought uh, have a go at cycling as a tour, touring thing so we started in victoria our youngest i think was two at the time we did some of the rail trails in victoria where they turned the old trail train lines into bike paths and there's one beautiful one that's still around to Bright to Wangaratta. It's a wonderful rail trail, about 120 kilometres. We took our four young children. So at the time, I think they were must have been six through to one or something like that. And they all, except for the one-year-old, they all rode their own bikes with, with dolls in the front basket and um, everything. And we just made it the best possible experience it could be for them. We were doing 15-odd kilometres a day off-road just on this bike path. And it was so short, the distances, we could just ride back to the car and then just bring the car forward every day. And we stayed at a different place every night to make it a real adventure. And that was so successful. We just knew then 
we could start slowly chipping away. So as they got older, cycling and hiking, we gradually introduced them to uh, higher and higher level activities. So uh, cycling, um, we rode across Europe um, 3,000 kilometres as a family in 2016. At the time, our youngest was seven. He rode it entirely himself on his own bike, carrying his own clothes, camping equipment, tents, everything. We had budgeted on doing about 20 or 30 kilometres a day um, over a two-month time period. We were doing 100 kilometres a day some days because the kids were so passionate about it. So it, it taught them and it was, a, it was our best family holiday ever. So as a family, it was so relaxed and not stressful because they were burning all their energy every day. There was no time for sitting in the car and arguing with each other or it just opened our eyes to how wonderful it is to do adventure travel with children. Absolutely wonderful. That's led to on the hiking side, we've done many of the long distance trails in Tasmania over the years. And then our, our most recent trip was we did a month hiking in, in Nepal. We went back just next to where Rosie and I met and did a, a one-month um, trek with the children. It was incredible and they had the time of their lives. So we always scale it so they're happy and having a good time and enjoying themselves and activities and things to do. I was worried about Nepal that hiking for such a long time period in a row would become boring for them because, as everyone knows, with children, they don't look at the views. It's not of interest to them how wonderful a mountain is. But the great thing with Nepal was there was always people in the fields with yaks, dogs, kittens, talking to the kids. Um, so they had the time of their lives and uh, so did we. So it's um, travelling as a family has opened our eyes to gr all of our great family stories are from our, our trips, as our hiking and riding trips as families. We went back to Korea for the first time since I worked there 17 years ago and rode across the length of Korea last year as a family. That has built a really rich family life, wonderful experiences, great holidays, and also environmentally friendly holidays other than the flights there, which flying is a horrific thing to do. When we hit the ground, um, whether you're hiking or cycling, it's totally low impact. You, you're just doing your own steam. You're eating locally. Uh, we camp wherever we can. Um, so also from a budgetary point of view, if anyone wondering how we can afford to do this, it's so cheap. When you're riding your bike and staying in campgrounds, even Europe, people think of Europe, it's horrifically expensive. It's not when you're riding. It, it's almost nothing. And hiking's the same. Wonderful family experiences. You talked about the environmental thing. Um, yes, and the other side benefit, all the, the other thing about this is travelling in developing countries, you see the horror of plastics, the horror of global corporations delivering plastic bottles into countries that have no ability to, to even bury them in landfill, let alone recycle them. It's horrific. One of our Indian dinner party stories we mentioned, we were sitting on a train in India as a family. We've been back there as a family many times now sitting on a long-distance train and uh, the conductor, uh, they had bins, but all the locals were chucking their rubbish straight, all their plastic and everything straight out the windows, as they do. And we're like, no. So we got, we'd collect all our rubbish, put it in the bin. It was a multi-day train trip. And the conductor came through emptying the bins. What did he do? He picked up the bin and chucked it out the window. And you're like, oh, my God, there's no way to avoid this other than not use plastic. And Indonesia's the same whether it's Bali that many people are going to been to or particularly more remoter parts of India, every bit of plastic you use in Indonesia 
ends up at the tail end of that village in a big pile and from time to time is set fire to and half it blows into the ocean. If you do that as a tourist, if you use plastic in Indonesia, that is what's going to happen to that plastic. So you could just as well chuck it in the ocean yourself as to how you're impacting the environment when you do those things. It's, um, it's hidden, but it's there. So this, yeah, it really opens your eye to uh, the damage that we're doing to the planet and how we pretend in developing countries they have the same ability to deal with it as we do in Western countries, and they just don't. It's, yeah, it's a horror story. And there is no environmental protection agency or people patrolling water sources to make sure that they're safe. We're talking about water. That, uh, there's no tap water that's good enough because we've, we as probably Western companies or people that have decided to move their business offshore, oftentimes the waste from that ends up just in the uh, the river systems and, and lake systems and on the ocean edge anyway. So even if they wanted to stop using their plastic bottles, there isn't a safe water source for, for many places to use as well. So that's another big, big problem. Oh, absolutely. It's, um, there's so many layers to the problems and you think of climate change and China is such a huge emitter. One of the key reasons why there's such a huge emitter is that we've outsourced our manufacturing to them and we're prepared. We'll only buy something at the cheapest price possible and that inevitably comes at incredibly poor environmental standards where we're outsourcing these things to get made. So it's a, it's a natural effect of the way we as consumers seek the cheapest product at any cost. That was my point on incentives. Often I, I just think about that. I'm, I'm like, if you're a family, then you budget, you know, $200 a week to spend on everything. And, and you say, okay, what am I going to get? Am I going to get an Australian made t-shirt for $60 or am I going to buy 10 Kmart ones or whatever it might be for $5 each? If I'm a family person that doesn't either doesn't want to hear the what's happening or doesn't, isn't able to, or, or even just says, you know what, it says ethical cotton on the front, you know, it must be okay, five bucks or whatever it might be. I, I think I'm doing the right thing. You know, you understand their incentives. You understand that a pure monetary system of earn as much money as you can and spend as little as you can on on stuff so that you can go on your big holiday or you can save up for your jet ski or what or even, you know, send your kid to a good school or whatever it might be. That's what the incentive failure is in the current society as I see it. Can you touch on on your perspective on that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So you're spot on. So when you go into a shop and buy a cheap T-shirt or even one that claims to be ethical, but probably just if we'll just go down the cheap end. So just a cheap T-shirt, you know, they're, they're, they're so ridiculously cheap now. I'm not a shopper, so but let's say they're $4. There is someone sitting in Bangladesh today making those T-shirts that even by Bangladeshi standards is not paid enough to eat and have their family in housing. So forget Western standards. Their salary is not enough to even be appropriately uh, just a basic lifestyle in Bangladesh. These workers of modern history herded into buildings that are incredibly unsafe and kill people. So there's, a, there's an example uh, not that many years ago where the workers turning up for their day's work in this multi-storey building, the work, you know, in, in, in Dakar, which is, I've been there as well as part of my travel, uh, which is, you know, this, there are no standards and every building looks horrific and dodgy. But even the workers who are used to this turned up to their building that particular morning 
and said, we don't want to go in. This building looks so incredibly unsafe. We actually don't want to go in. But, of course, their employer said, don't go in. You don't get paid. You all get sacked. I'll just employ the next lot. So they went in. The building collapsed and it killed thousands of them. So there's just not, not only are they not earning a wage just to eat in their own society, they're actually working uh, almost like slaves, aren't they? Because they don't even have a choice whether to go into something they think looks dangerous um, on the day. So that's pretty much modern slavery, in my view. And yes, so why are we buying those T-shirts? Part of it is because, yes, we've got this budget of $200 a week to spend on things because uh, our family budget is tight. So we will naturally choose the cheapest. And we don't have, some people say we don't have the luxury to buy that expensive ethical um, T-shirt, as you mentioned. But to me, that goes back, and that's true, but it, but it goes to that deeper problem of the way the family life and the way we're living our lives is set up. So we can avoid all that. So we get into the trap of having to buy the cheapest and sacrifice those poor people in Bangladesh. Because we're living the consumerist life where we've got the mortgages too big, we've maxed the mortgage to over-consume on a, on a house that's probably, oh, we'll go, we can go there in a minute, but we've maxed our debt. We're, we're trying to max our pile of money for retirement. So we're driven by all this desire for money. We don't have the time, so it, it robs us of time. So if you have time and you're not driven by this, these other things and the need to pay a mass, an inappropriately large debt, then you have time to go to Vinnie's. You have time to shop secondhand and dodge all of that and actually spend less money. You have time to have a home garden if that's what you're interested in. You have time to grow your own veggies and to save on costs with buying fast food because it's not actually cheaper long term. So you could cook for yourself. You could, you'd have time for cooking, time for growing veggies, time for doing secondhand shopping, time to buy secondhand things like cars that have a huge impact. We buy a million new cars a year in Australia. It's nuts. Financially, it's nuts, right? So everyone on tight budgets is rushing in and doing that because I want a warranty and I don't have time to shop around and find good secondhand car. You lose somewhere between 50 and 30% for new cars value in the first three years. It is financial and environmental insanity to buy a new car. But it's when we're trapped in this, it's like a rat a, on a wheel. It's very hard to break out. So you've got the high debt, the need to spend as little as possible, the time poor so you can't um, do the things you love and save money and save the environment by doing that. And you need to be focused on the boss because you're worried about losing your job because you've got all these um, financial things so you can't do the ethical things at work too. Can you see it all stitches together in this horrible matrix of driving us to buy that cheap T-shirt? So it's not about just saying, oh, it's not fair, everyone's, we just have to do that. It's about the setup before you walk into the shop and having a, a life arranged differently. But it's actually in a way that's in your best self-interest to do that. And it has environmental benefits and it has human rights benefits. So it can all align properly, but it needs a more sophisticated view about how your family goes about uh, arranging their finances before you get trapped. So there is hope at an individual level, do you see? Or, or is this a wholesale change that is needed at a level above people, individual people? You know, with your work, are you focused on the individual or are you saying, look, you know, individuals can make small changes, but it, it's going to take governmental or, you know, corp corporate level shift? What, what do you see as the way forward here? It'd be lovely if it would come from governments and corporations. 
uh, but it's never going to, in my opinion. It's absolutely false hope saying that the government should do this, the corporation should do this. It's totally off track in terms of if you want to see real change, in my mind. And the good news, in my opinion, is that it is possible and easily doable for consumers to drive the change. So easy. And because we're in a world of big data where everyone knows your shopping habits and what you're doing and can quickly see how you're spending your money, consumers can change the world instantly, basically, by changing the way they do things. It's a, we have so much power, both in the way we use our money but the way we live our lives, everything. We know that the government of the day will change their policies this afternoon if they think the majority of people will vote for them for that policy. They don't have any ethics about what that policy is. So if it's about us, as enough of us, being wise enough to say this is the way we'd like it, they will change instantly. We don't have to fight them. We just have to vote that way and drive it that way. Corporations, likewise, will instantly change the products available on the shop in the supermarket if we show that we prefer something. And free-range eggs is a good example of that. Consumers had a very large demand for free-range eggs because what they, their demand was for not caged eggs. So uh, supermarkets started thinking about that. And, of course, they'd put out a few testers. These ones are free-range, these ones aren't. And the free-range are a bit more expensive. Massive consumer demand. So that's it's almost when you go to a supermarket now, the vast majority of eggs on offer are so-called free-range. So it's totally changed the whole industry because of our mindset. So we can change uh, the finance industry, the food we're, we're buying, uh, the food and the way it's produced and the goods that we get just by changing our habits. And it doesn't take everyone to do it to change companies. It only takes a small percentage and it, and it massively changes things. And the trends currently in the finance industry are great examples of that. Now, you've been able on an individual level, Stuart, to transfer your, your knowledge and expertise into these areas and these key uh, key ways to realign where money's going to make radical change happen based on, you know, your choice. You, you got to Tassie. What was the, the first thing you did once, you, you know, you went to India, you came back, you did all of that? What was the first thing you did to say, I actually believe in my power as an individual and what I can do in my job to make a difference for the benefit of the planet? Did you have that thought instantly? Was it something that was a gradual change? Where did that shift happen? I was so lucky. I just had this sliding doors moment. People had said to me, oh, you should think about being a financial advisor. You know, you've got all these skills, you know, decades in the finance industry, blah, blah, blah. And it never interested me. Uh, So I thought, well, I've been dealing at sort of the big end of town. I've never really had to deal with real people and emotions and things like that. I didn't even know I had skill set. And, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, it didn't really appeal. But I was so lucky. I met one of the pioneers in the financial advice space in Australia who did ethical investing. And that was my sliding doors moment where suddenly I realised, hey, there's a part of the finance industry that's trying to use money for good rather than for evil. And, And clients, there's people out there that are prepared to invest their money and use their banking arrangements and everything to actually drive change and do good in the world. And I'm like, holy, holy hell, that's that's my two worlds combined, the love of finance and the stuff I did on the weekend in the environment and social areas. This is the combination of the two. This is the, this is the interlinking. So 
the two things in life that I really liked um, suddenly joined together and it was like an eye-opening moment for me and that completely changed my future direction. It was um, just so fortuitous and that found me a passion to spring out of bed in the morning and be so driven by what I do again in a way that's doing good um, rather than just seeking money for money's sake for myself or my clients. It was so such a wonderful, fortuitous thing happened to me and that's really driven that sort of second half of my career from that moment onwards. Um, just wonderful. Yeah, you get a lot of joy out of work and, and even when you were doing those long, long days in Asia and early in your career, you said you did love it but there were things that you had to sacrifice along the way. Are you able to put the time and effort in now, you know, above and beyond maybe the normal 38-hour week into your job because it's something you're passionate about, it's worth it, and you're not really sacrificing family, you know, commitments and and even personal commitments of you know hobbies and the like. Are, are you able to to jump right in, or are you really limiting the amount of time you work? As well as you know, basically, what I'm saying is, you know, are you able to jump in with all that passion and drive and commitment, which I know you are, but are you able to do that without sacrificing too many hours of you know, your hobby and family time as well? Yes, and that's where I think we all should be aiming. Everyone, in my view, should work part-time, at least wherever possible, um, wherever practical and possible. So I put my heart and soul, so I'm an ethical financial planner. I put my, a company, um, I put my heart and soul into the job and I love what I do. I love my clients. I love the conversations we have and good things we do together. But that doesn't correlate anymore to putting in 23-hour days kind of stuff. I've transitioned over the last decade to from full-time to part-time, and uh, now I'm very part-time. I work uh, a lot from – so I'm managing the company more now than, than, than um, dealing with individual clients. So I've slowly built the firm up where I have wonderful staff working for me who are taking care of our brilliant clients, and I – I love the clients dearly and, and, and Hobart being Hobart, we see each other everywhere and we have coffee and if they need me, I, I deal with them. But a lot of the more day-to-day things with their portfolio management's done now by my wonderful financial planning staff. So that gives me the ability to just look for the best ethical products for the clients, but also to spend a lot of my time on other great volunteer projects in Tassie and elsewhere. And so I've just brought it all together i'm available for the children whenever we we need to do things and parent teachers and everything i don't miss a school play anything like that that's just non-negotiable um so i'm available for my, for my parents all of that is prioritized as well as passion drive and energy into work i think about it every day i'm all the brain is always ticking over what we can do and also using the combination of finance and environmental skills that i have to help other great organisations achieve what they want to achieve. It's just such a, it's a really rich life. Like I, I, I just love what I do and I'm really focus on tr- trying my best to stay on track to good organisations, good financial things and, and, and offering my fairly unique skills of having a high-level finance and the high-level understanding of not-for-profits to help drive great outcomes in, in those sectors also. Oh, fantastic. You mentioned... Ideally, everyone would work part-time. Is that possible for people that maybe haven't got a bit of a background where they've accumulated a bit of wealth or assets or, or time or a family or whatever? Is it is it possible for, you know, that, that 23-year-old 
to to go out in the world and, and just be a part-time worker? Do you do you see that as a possibility for us as as Australians, first of all? Yes, absolutely. I, I really passionately believe that. And and more so as people get into a family situation and less so as a 23-year-old. Um, because it's about allocating our time so we're having the best life we can possibly think of. And part of that has to be reasonable level of financial security and money. But part of that is understanding what, what is important to you when you're lying in your deathbed, what are the things you're going to look back on and say, oh, I had an awesome life. And it is, you know, based on what most people say, it's about the, the, a meaningful job, a meaningful hobby, you know, doing what, you're at, what you really get off on for hobbies, um, contributing to great organisations, friends and family. So part-time unlocks a lot of that. So be, having extra time unlocks the ability to have a happy, more happy, more meaningful, great relationships life. Now, you rightly ask, but how am I going to afford that? It's cheaper to work part-time as well. I have never, in, in my 13 years as a financial advisor here in Tassie, I've never had a client who has moved to part-time or met someone who is already part-time that said it didn't work out better for them, not once financially better for them. So we think of people with children in childcare, the cost of childcare and the loss of family tax benefits by moving into uh, one of the partners who's working part-time, moving up into full-time work, is often 80% of the extra money they earn goes on all the other costs to be able to do that. And then they're not able to cook at home. They have to do all the the other expenses and the fast holidays and everything we've talked about to maintain that lifestyle. So they lose the ability to spend time with their young children. They lose the ability for quality time with grandparents. They lose the ability for quality time with their partners. They lose so much. And they lose the ability to shop at Binnie's. They lose the ability to shop around for specials. They lose the ability to buy a cheap secondhand car they lose the ability to get a quality holiday at a better price. So you lose so much financially to not have time anymore to make smart financial decisions. You end up on rat on the wheel again, spending more than you have to because there's no time. So I, I, I challenge where you're in that situation, have a go. If you've got the ability of a job that's flexible, step back, take one day a week off, preferably midweek, so it's not just an extra weekend. I think it's more efficient when you take off midweek. And have a go, take my challenge and see where you end up. I've, As I said, I, I haven't got anyone yet who's actually stepped back into full-time work because financially they were, were better off to be part-time. It's a cultural thing though, isn't it? It's it's We're often seen as a society where we live to work rather than work to live. And, and people... The first thing you ask, what do you do? What, you know, what do you do for a living? And it's like, no, no, no. I raise children. I, you know, do a bit of woodwork. I go on hikes. No, no, no. It's, I'm a financial planner. I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher. So that's, you know, my first answer. And, but that's not what makes you, you. And, and also you mentioned this, the coronavirus has put this into place for me. And I'm in a privileged, lucky situation where I'm still getting paid as a teacher to teach remotely, but I've got a bit more time travel time. I can be a bit more flexible as to when I do my marking and correction. When I do my uh, video lessons, I can do it after curfew in Victoria and I can have the day to actually, you know, go for my walk or do a bit of gardening in the backyard, whatever it might be. But 
I've been able to save shop at the market rather than, you know, get your food delivered. Um, you know, not fill that hole because you're tired. You've had a horrible day. You've had a meeting. You've been stuck in traffic for an hour on the way home. You get here, you've got your screaming kids that have hated their day at childcare. You, you rush inside your wife or husband or whatever it is cooking food or, you know, opening the, the packet of plastic. You don't have time to start a compost bin or recycling. And you just go and you put the bachelor on, you sit in front of the TV watching trash. And then you're like, how can I make this worth it? Well, either a drink or I'll just buy something online to fill that hole. And and I do get that cycle, that rat race. And a lot of people maybe get a lot of enjoyment and, and are able to experience greatness out of their work and, and working full time. But many people that you hear complain about work mostly, but then when work's taken away from them, they're left with this empty hole and empty shell often. So this, how do we break that culture and break that emptiness that comes from actually having time and actually having to live in your own head again and be a bit, you know, connect with yourself again? You, you've got to be really courageous to make that first step to go part-time, don't you? Because it just seems so stupid. And uh, it's very difficult for people to do because we are trapped in that mentality. But that's why you've sort of kind of got to take the Pepsi challenge and just do it if you're able to. In a best-case scenario, if you're able to do that in a, a flexible work environment where you can change your mind, then there's no risk, is it? So many people can choose to do that and be courageous enough then just to assess themselves over six, 12 months. How have they felt about their friends and family reaction? Most people will actually be jealous. They won't be saying you're nuts, um, including your colleagues. And, yeah, maybe that means you won't be CEO one day, but you might only get to the third rung of the corporate corporation. But unless being CEO is something that's going to make you truly happy on your deathbed and have a quality, rich life, why do you want to do it? All that I guess I'm suggesting to people is follow their own self-interest, what they truly, in their heart of hearts, think will make them the happiest and have a happiest life. And and, and that's one of the other things with part-time work. So we were talking before about I'll, I'll guarantee you'll spend less if you've got more time, guarantee it, and spend more ethically as well. But working part-time, I think you actually earn more. So how, how can that be? Part-time workers, if you meet people that work part-time, you were touching on there, Matthew, too, in terms of having more time, it delivers more energy and more happiness to you as an employee. Now, who's going to be the most successful in their career than the people who word around town is they're an awesome employee, puts in the extra effort and really loves their job and therefore you you will stand out as, as someone that's worth um, employing. Is that person going to be more attracted by corporations and, and employers over over their career? Or is it someone who works there you know, 23 hours a day, seven days a week and is miserable and unhappy and complaining over the water cooler? It'll be the person always, you know, people with energy and enthusiasm shine through. And when when things hit the fan with the economy and we go into recessions like we're experiencing now, guess what? When the retrenchments come around, the part-timers will be the one that survive because they're the ones that are happier, more productive employees, and, hey, they cost less too. <laughs> so I think over the course of a career, you'll earn more. And the other theory around earning more over the course of a career being part-time is that if you're happy and higher energy, you're going to work longer. You're going to work through to, let's say, mid-60s, 70s, whatever. You're going to be happy and, and loving going to work much longer rather than 
I see so many people, and you mentioned teaching, I see so many teachers that come in for financial advice that are burnt, they're done, and they're only late 50s, they're miserable, and they're suffering the bureaucracy. It's not the kids, it's the bureaucracy, the organisations. So they are going to lose a decade of their uh, salaries because they've given it all and burnt out, whereas part-timers, I suspect, will get to that late 50s and they're able to continue on and earn money. There might be more and more part-timers they get older, but when you do financial planning and you look at people's retirement picture, people that continue to work even two days a week for as long as they're happy to do, and they, if they like their job, they get meaning and, and a good life out of it as well, their money lasts decades more than everyone else because they're not drawing out of the out of the tank as quickly as everyone else in the early years. So I've segued off on this, but income can more income by part-time work as well. It's all very counterintuitive, but spending less, earning more, being more employable, being a better employee, you'll have a better career as well, and a happier life. Like it's the total package in my mind. And the linchpin is time and part-time as you get to that situation. And Earning is is one, but that time is money as well. And and you've got that time, but you can put that time into creative pursuits. You can meditate. And so every minute of your days actually means a little bit more than it once did. You can write a book. You can have a journal. You can listen to that your favourite album. You can take the tram or, or ride to work because you're not in as much of a rush anymore. You don't have to Oh, I've got to get leave home at this exact minute. And if the train gets, you know, if the boom gates are down on the train track, that's it. And you're losing it. And what a day, you know, the amount of people you see smashing their hands on the steering wheel and you go, how are we supposed to make good decisions when it comes to voting or when it comes to where to put your money or, or when it comes to going through the aisles in the supermarket, if we can't even control just our basic happiness or just our anger or our pain and suffering. So that's that's the level. And as a teacher, you mentioned burning out, and it's happening more and more with more and more younger. I think 50% of teachers quit within five years or something like that. And it's supposed to be this vocation where you're giving your all to, to kids, but it is that hours and hours and you're, you're almost um, judged on your, what did you do at 10 o'clock at night, you know, every meeting. It's like, oh, I was up till 10 o'clock marking work. I was up till doing this. It's like, how can that be celebrated? <laughs> um, but we're celebrating it, you know, and then that burns people out. Where is the the joy? It comes down to that, I think. Absolutely. And as you, as you rightly say, like with the a more mindful day delivers much better decisions as well as better sleep, calm, less alcohol, less, yeah, less self-medication and negative behaviours and less fighting with your partner. So... If a more relaxed, mindful day, the way to, it's impossible to do that when you're working intense and you've, you've got the million dollar mortgage and everything's a gun to your head. And it is possible to do that when you have time to think. That's why often on long holidays, that's where you get the ideas and the, and the life changing events and because your brain just declutters for a while. So if you could work on a way to figure out how your brain could be relatively decluttered every week of the year, you will find better opportunities. You find um, jobs that you might have even never thought of or, or hobbies to do that turn into careers. So many possibilities open up when you've actually got that mindfulness and the time to consider everything. And just once again, just be driven by what's best for you and your family, not by what everyone else wants. Yeah, the late and great Bill Hicks comedian said, 
there's two drugs of choice, coffee during the week to keep you awake and um, during the, the doing the things you hate. And then on the weekend, it's alcohol to, to numb you and, you know, to let you relax because we can't actually do it anymore. And that seems to be the way that people often live their lives. We talk about time, uh, you know, I want more time when I'm retired, but we're often wishing away time. I can't wait for the holiday. I can't wait for the weekend. I can't wait for the party. I can't wait for Christmas. What about... I can't wait for the next coffee I'm going to have and enjoy it. I can't wait for the next conversation. I can't wait for that next moment staring into my child's eyes or looking across at a park or I don't know. <sighs> These are the things and I, and I know it's hard and I've been in that trap myself and I'm, I'm, I'm 32, turning 32 soon. So I'm young. It's not like I've spent years doing this, but you know, I, I feel that I was at a point where I was dieting. I was going to the gym in the morning or night rushing home and doing chores. I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. I'm eating, you know, and then I'd go to sleep and I'd be burnt out. And then on the weekend I say, ah, oh, stuff it. I'll have 10 pints and two Sivlakis and it's ruined the week. And what have you done? And, and now that I've got a bit more time with COVID and I'm one of the lucky ones, I preface again, but I've lost 15 kilos without trying. I haven't done a thing. I've saved more than triple the amount of money than I have when I was I mean, I'm earning the same, but, you know, I now have the opportunity to say, you know what, I'll put a lamb roast in that costs me, you know, a bit more because it's ethical, but it's a lot cheaper than going to the pub. So you've got all these choices. You've got all these things to say, yeah, but if you go to that free range butcher, you're spending more. Well, but I'm not going to the to the fast food. I'm not going to the pub. I'm not going to ruin all those things that I've tried so hard on during the week and and you know, killed myself for, and then all of a sudden it's ruined and, and you're depressed because you say, I can't even have agency over my decisions. And and so I think part-time work has a lot to do with that. So I'm glad you, you are, you know, fighting for that. I think it's really important. And uh, you, you, describing what's happened to you is, is just the perfect study on, on how these things can work. And, yes, you might spend more on that organic food or the ethical meat choice on that actual purchase versus a cheaper one. But one of the other things is mental health and physical health. And if it's making you feel good and calm that you're doing the right thing by the planet in your food choices and you're not eating junk food down at the pub, that ultimately has to save you money as well, surely, regardless of the cost of the pub meal. But in terms of your health, by by having a healthier weight, better mental health through that fitness, and the fact that you're not going to have, you'll have a significantly less chance of things like cancer events later on in your life, they smash your earnings as well. So you have a year off for cancer, hey, that's, that, that um, cheaper, cheaper chemical-laden vegetable from China that you bought instead of a, a good choice, that actually ended up costing you a hell of a lot more in so many ways. So there is, you can be on the, the, the spiral downward, which is what you were describing in terms of spending, health, weight, time everything works in conjunction with with each other to make everything worse and worse and worse or you can go on an upward spiral like what you were describing post-covid or during covid where suddenly you're making healthier choices the weight's falling off without needing to do much you don't have to be the um, on the treadmill at the gym which can save money as well so many good things happen that feed upwards and it'll also make you a happier healthy employee too so which path do we all want to be on? It's got to be the, the happier path, happier and wealthier ultimately too path. 
our listener is inspired. They're ready, Stuart. They, what, do we, what do they do? What's the first step? Part-time. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it's, the, it's the hardest one to do mentally, but if you work, are lucky enough to work a job where flexible work hours are part of it or your employer would be perfectly happy for you to do that. And let's face it, many employers, myself included, when staff go part-time, especially when it's from five days to four, you figure they're probably going to do the same amount of work anyway. They're just going to have less chit-chat, more productive. So it's a winner for everyone. <laughs> you pay them a, a day less. They probably do five days in four anyway. So everyone can be a winner because they're happy also. If you can, be courageous enough to test run part-time for six to 12 months. Take the challenge and see whether you're better off both mentally, physically, but also financially. I think all three will be in your favour. And as I said, I've never met anyone that's had to go back. Uh, do you have a goal-setting routine or something? Do you uh, realign yourself with your values, uh, you know, on a yearly basis, on a monthly, on a daily? What, what's your situation in terms of being able to set a pathway forward for yourself and the people around you? Or is it that you've got more time that it's just a sort of moment-by-moment moment choice that you're actually able to have a think uh, because you've got more time now? I've always been uh, a very conscious thinker around my life and what's happening and I've always sat there ever since very young probably late teens I've always sat down you know the first week of January and actually written a goal list for that year must admit I haven't done it the last few years in terms of actually physically written the list because I'm so on track with where I want to be but um, I used to always write down what I wanted to achieve for the year and things to do and what what not so yeah I'm very structured in the way I've thought about it I've always thought very deeply about my life and what I'm doing and not necessarily doesn't drive the right choices in the earlier careers, but I've always been thinking, a thinker about things like that. So yeah, I like lists. Um, I like working through things. I, I work to a list every day, every week. Oh, my first thing in the, in the, during the day would be to usually just get a scrap of paper from out of the recycle bin, an old envelope or whatever, and write down the five things I'm going to try and do today. And that might be really mundane. It might be yesterday I built an extension to the kid's guinea pig cage. Right, out of scrap wood, but I had such a great time because I'm not a I don't can't use a hammer and screwdriver, and I just thought I'm going to have a crack. Worst case scenario, it goes back to the tip shop, you know. Um, and it was such a great thing, such great. It actually took me two and a half days to be honest, but it, um, it was such a great thing to do just to try something different. But yeah, having that list, I was thinking about things like that and discussing with my wife what what are we going to do this year? What do we think? How's this going to play out? Yeah, for me, it works really well. It's not for everyone, the list thing. It's, different. it's a basic personality type, I think. But uh, it works really well just to be mindful of what you're doing on a longer time frame than just that choice on the way home from work. But to have it structured where where, are, where do you want your happiness in your life to be heading over longer time frames really helps you make good choices as decisions arrive. Are you optimistic? Uh, do you look ahead in the next two, five, 10, 20 years? if you do look ahead, with the glass half full or glass half empty in terms of humans and the planet, do you think that a lot of people are going to be able to take on board some of the stuff that we're talking about today and in their own way and through their own contexts and start to make the changes that are required to fix things? Or are we going to just continue heading down this pathway that I believe is you know, an existential threat to humans' current society anyway. 
first of all, do you have that belief that we're heading down a dangerous pathway and we've got to change? And secondly, if you do have that belief, are you optimistic about, you know, our, our ability to change our direction? Well, I just would struggle to think that you, anyone who actually has got any level of intelligence could think that we're on the right track. We are, we are it's a basic intelligence test, basically, in my view, <laughs> um, that we are off track. So every statistic on the planet shows that we're rapidly heading off a, a very major cliff. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Optimism in terms of the future, uh, gee, I'm terrified by the future view. As a species, we've never shown that we're able to act at the level of a species to do the right thing by our species. So that rampant rape of nature for our own short-term benefit, uh, gee, it's hard to see that changing in the absence of very, very serious impact. And the trouble with biodiversity loss and climate change is that you can't do it once, learn the lesson and then get on a good track because once you do it once, it's gone. And that's the thing that really scares me. Um, look, every I, I believe that we're, we're past the tipping point on climate. So we have shat in the nest and we're going to find out what that looks like. To me, I, I've actually always been driven by biodiversity of which humans are part of nature. But I'm actually driven more by care of nature than humans, to be honest. So I, I want our wonderful, rich nature to survive the impacts that we're delivering it and also the the portion of humans that really cop it bad you know the ones that aren't the lucky ones um but I, i'm really driven by preserving nature as much as possible from human impacts and and maybe it's uh, expect the worst hope for the best um so if you if i take the view well it's going to be really horrific for the planet uh, what humans are doing to it and we're never going to change in a meaningful way before it's too late I put all my energy and the positivity into into doing the best I can for for nature to survive what what humans do to it. Um, so I guess that's where I get my positivity to take positive action to protect the, our beautiful nature that's out there as much as I physically can through my efforts and do my bit to help really great humans with with their lives to to be role models and show what is possible by having a lower consumption, richer life. But boy, as a species, we, you know, it, it, it'd be fairly unrealistic to be too optimistic that we're clever enough to change, in my mind. <laughs> um, we just don't do it. Um, yeah, it's sad, but true, I think. And so I think the world would be better with about 10% of the population that we've got. And I'd prefer that happens through us not having as many babies in the future rather than people and my children, you know, having to pay the price of that, dying and whatnot, but a lower, a lower population through... Well, the tricky thing is as, as populations get rich, they have less children. So the, the best path would be that everyone gets... Societies get wealthy enough that they don't feel they need 12 children anymore because of healthcare. And, you know, it's basics, access to contraceptions, in educating women and a reasonable level of financial security drives down the birth rate massively. So we could do it in a really good, positive way where it's a choice of happy families to go down that path. The, the, the thing I can't get my head around is to get everyone to that level of security would, would need that last massive rape of the Earth's resources to get everyone there to aspire to our lifestyle. Um, so I can't solve that in my head, but that 
But if there was some way to do that in a low-impact way to get everyone happy enough that they feel that they need, they, they're happy to have less children, we, we could get there through that path. But I haven't been able to get my head around that, how we get there yet in a way that would preserve what we've got there. Yeah, it's not I, too gloomy. No, no. Well, I'm full of gloom. <laughs> um, I watched the documentary 2040 and uh, the documentary outlines a pathway that when... 2040 comes around what the world could look like with our current technology and by just making the right choices we're able to have a full and rich life that is as connected as uh luxurious in many ways but without the cost on the environment and some people see that as a possibility with our current technology you know we transition away from fossil fuels we transition away from deforestation you know we have more sustainable farming practices this this and this and by doing that in a very very short amount of time then hopefully we're able to you know avoid the worst calamities of climate change although we are experiencing some of the we're, we're in the midst of it right now but as you say we've got seven billion or eight billion of people to do that for not not just 20 million in australia which is hard enough we've actually got to bring everyone along with us. But then I sometimes struggle to understand, so who are the 10%? Is it me because I've been born lucky enough to have choices? Is it the Nigerian family that has to have their 15 kids? Is it um, the bloke that's doing, you know, 12-hour shifts of digging up um, asbestos and throat, not worrying about it because it's too expensive for his business and, and he doesn't care, um, but then goes at the pub and spends 45 percent of it in a day because life's tough and he's you know it's 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 just the way you know it's a cycle cycle of experience and trauma and conditioning and and you know all of these things and i i sometimes struggle to to match that intellectual what's possible with that personal side and i'm seeing it right now in the darkest days of coronavirus in australia in victoria stage four many people that i thought were quite sane are now believing some of the most insane reasons for the lockdown because maybe they don't have, maybe, I don't know, I don't know why I'm trying my best to understand and unpack how people are so susceptible to the most outrageous fear-mongering sides of humanity and I and I'm just I'm I'm at a I'm at a point where I'm just stuck. And you, you know, I feel like you're in a similar boat in your way where you're trying to balance the what you want, what you, you know is needed versus yeah, in 30 years we could be at a at a time of societal collapse. And I don't know, what do we do? What do you do every day to get through that and, and to be positive? You mentioned you've got your little um the things that make you positive, the people at arm's length. But yeah, how can you um unpack this further and, and maybe uh, give me some clarity. <laughs> but there's so many things in what you just talked about. I was trying to retain them all because um, they're all great. I guess one thing we should always understand, the first the first stage of grief is denial. So it's probably a natural reaction where you get all the nut- nutters coming out and saying it's 5G or Bill Gates causing the whole thing. And we've seen that with climate change. We've seen it with everything, that the first stage is a violent reaction against the truth. And that's people go through that obviously when they dying they're told that they've got a terminal illness so that's perhaps we could just recognize that as normal you mentioned 2040 that's so wonderful um we rushed our children to the cinema to we went to the opening in hobart actually and um i met the filmmaker 
it's such a wonderful thing, a positive thing to show children the next generation because I'm already aware of one uni student here in Tassie who um, committed suicide over climate change and we can't destroy the hope for our children and there has to be positive ideas and actions that we can take and 2040 was just a beautiful example of that. And for those interested in economics, you know, one of the, the economists he interviews during the movie, Kate Rayworth, you know, the donut economics, that just nails it. And it nails what we've been talking about as people, how it's in our interest to have a happier life and less t- more time, et cetera. It nails that at the society level as well, where, hey, why don't we just run our economies? Instead of saying what we're going to do this year is just try and maximise this bizarre concept called the economy at any cost, and we add up car crashes, drug overdoses and admissions to hospital when we work out whether we've had a good year or not because they it makes us spend money, which is just wrong, it's bizarre. So we measure the wrong thing and, and sack politicians when the wrong thing doesn't go up and employ the ones who get the wrong thing to go up, even though it might have been for, you know, just by devastation in the economy meant we spent more. Um, so it's just nuts. Um, so being on track. Um, so it's, yeah, 2040 is brilliant. Love it. Recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it and take their kids. Teenagers, brilliant. But I think uh, when you were talking, the, one of the things that popped into my head was I think the most optimistic book I've read, uh, and I tend not to read the books on climate change and these things because they're just so, they just rob me of desire and rob me of optimism. But there's a great book called by a Tasmanian author called Paul Gilding who has operated at the global stage. He's been an advisor to the BHP Global Board, for example, on climate change. So he wrote a book probably five years ago now called The Great Disruption. And to me it's one of the most positive books I've read around climate change because, it, of course, you're attracted to things that reinforce your own ideas. Like to me we are pretty dumb as a species and we will cause a massive problem. And, and Paul's on that too. So the first half of the book basically goes through the horror of what's about to happen. But he also says that one of the thing, great things about the humans as a species is that when the, we're really poor as cavemen and women about anticipating a, a bear might come to the cave door and preparing for it, but we're bloody good when the bear arrives. And he uses the example of World War II where Americans accepted within something like a five-day period total rationing of the whole economy, petrol, meat, everything, accepted largely without complaint because the bear was at the door, they were at war, Japan was attacking, and they just swung into action and changed everything that previously would have been unimaginable to change. So so the first half of the book is about that and, and explaining that. But then the second half is that they do work, we do get to that point, we do swing into action, and when it hits the fan, because it will, and we put all of our efforts and spirits into fixing the problem, and out of that comes the new economy where we actually live smart in a way that respects the planet and society, and it's kind of the happier ever after second part to the book in a, in a way that I can really justify in my head. So that's the really sunny, optimistic view, I think, of, whilst accepting it's locked in, that there is a way through, a painful crunch in the middle. He calls it great disruption, not great anything else. It's a disruption that's massive, but we get through it and we live the way we should be today afterwards. I love that and it's really stuck with me. Going to your real question, the things I got out of what you're talking about, there's so much there, but 
well, what do I do? What what do you do? I think we just need to get off our butt and do things and help in the way that we can help as individuals. What once again we get off on. So there's the whole spectrum around. Like in Tassie, there's some wonderful humans chaining themselves to trees, stopping three hundred year old trees being clear felled for no actual purpose, basically. So there's a spectrum of the, the, the those people right through to CEOs of, you know, World Wildlife Fund or whatever, and everyone has their unique place in that spectrum of action or it might be politicians. So there's, a, there's so many ways that we can contribute to solving the problem. We've just got to pick what works for us. So I don't – it robs me of energy and desire when I get into the – the locking myself to a tree, the lobbying politicians, the asking people not to do things. I hate that and it just doesn't work for me. I like positive. What, what works for me as a person is contributing my skills to the maximum extent possible to help good organisations solve the problems they're trying to solve. That's what works for me and that's what gets me out of bed in the morning and gives me total joy. So I contribute to environmental organisations and social organisations community organisations that align with my values and I think that's for my time, that's where the world gets the most benefit. So I align with that and it gives me, so I think, oh, it's, you know, I've been at times volunteering on seven different boards simultaneously with four young kids in a business, but the reason I do it is it actually gives me energy, positivity and joy. It's not a sacrifice. I get more out of those organisations and their success than I give. So it's a total winner again as well. And for my personal self-interest and the world and these organisations, uh, it just works for me. So to answer your question, I think everyone has to choose what works for them, whether it's locking a self-detractor, Extinction Rebellion, becoming a politician, progressive politician, or donating to good organisations or preferably giving time to good organisations by volunteering. Whichever works for you on the spectrum, do it. And you will find that it gives you optimism, it shows your children what can be done as well. So many benefits to that. And you meet awesome people who care about what you care about, who are doing things that um, to help change the world in your suburb or at a global level. It is so awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that's the the key about giving time because you do feel energized afterwards rather than just giving a you know, a direct debit that you forget about or whatever it might be, which is great as well. But time, you, you meet people, you connect, you network, you find new ideas and you're energised, as you say. And uh, you mentioned being on seven boards at once and how time-consuming that would be, but it's not consuming. It's, it, it is, um, as you said, it, it actually gives you more time and gives you more of an opportunity to explore your passions. And, and I find the same. People say, how can you spend so many hours recording and editing a podcast or, you know, how can you love going on school camps and put your hand up on all of them? It's like, well, instead of telling a kid to shut up and sit down in a, in a classroom, I'm watching them do the things that scare them most. I'm helping them have a first week away from home that they've ever had. I'm helping them conquer fears or just hearing their stories and not just having a test at the end of the day that, you know, is my motive. It's, it's, so it's much more energizing, even though it takes more time. And I think that part-time element actually says, well, part-time of the work, part-time of the stuff that's hard or the stuff that is necessary for the money, but then full-time with life in a way because we're often, we've got no time for life often. Yep, so it all gets back to time, doesn't it? It's been a recurring theme of our conversation and 
Um, and as you said, I, I believe you, the time you put into those organisations that you love uh, or the activities that you think would be really worthwhile, you get more time back than what, than what you give and you get total joy and happiness and that's that deathbed. No one's going to say, oh, I'm really so sad I did my best for that organisation and I wasted all my time doing that. They, but they're going to say, oh, I really wish I didn't have that extra day at the office. So you just do think about what's going to give you a happy life and do it and be pos- do positive action with things you care about. You're a financial advisor or, or that's um, your work now managing that. Or where can people or where should people be investing their money if they've, you know, they've earned a fair bit of money, they're sitting on a bit of cash and they're thinking, what can I do? I've just, I've never thought about where my super goes. I don't care who my bank is, you know, whatever. What's other than going part-time and, and gaining more time, what can we do with our money to actually improve our own lives as well as the planet? Well, I'll tell you the really great news. You don't need to have any wealth at all to change the planet with your money. We have such incredible power as consumers, regardless of whether we have a dollar in the bank or a million dollars in the bank, there is so many great things you can do and they're really, really easy. So I'd love for listeners to do some of these actions. So we all have a bank account. The banks absolutely panicked that you will see your bank is unethical and change to what you consider a more ethical bank. Now, why would the CEO of a bank panic because someone with, you know, 10 bucks in the bank um, is shifting their account? They panic because when they see us, people never change their banks. So the reason when I was young, the Commonwealth Bank lady used to come around and collect our pennies and, you know, put it in our passbook for us. That would have cost the banks a fortune to do that. But the reason they did it is because they knew once you, they had your account, chances are you would keep that Commonwealth Bank account the rest of your life. We change partners more often than we do banks. No one changes banks. So when you are part of a tiny trickle who write to your bank and say, you, you said you're going to finance Adani, I'm leaving you and going to somewhere that said they won't, it, makes an, it has already made a massive impact. There has been an earthquake through the banking sector of Australia through some people, not many doing that already. The chairman of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia at an annual general meeting five years ago said, our goal is to be seen as the most ethical bank in Australia. So it wasn't to maximise profit, it was to be the most ethical bank because they see that's the only future pathway to keep consumers banking with them. So you have incredible power by threatening, you don't even have to do it, threatening to send your bank an email and saying, I understand you're financing this, I'm going to leave you and you'll never see me again if you do. Can you please explain why it's in my interest, society's interest and your bank's interest to do this project? They are terrified. So if you have a bank account, you have massive power, implement change immediately, and I can give you a shortcut way to do that if we look back to that later. Secondly, we all have superannuation. Superannuation funds own the majority of the stocks in Australia, so they own the corporations we like to say should be doing better. You can hold your super fund accountable if they are owning companies you are not happy with. So if they own the largest gaming uh, pokies machine operator in Australia and you see that pokies deliver devastation to low socioeconomic families around Australia, they do, you ask your super fund why they think it's in your interest to be investing in a company like that that's devastating the society that you're saving up to retire in. Ask them that question. They hate it. They panic. 
and it is already changing the super fund world. And there's a very good shortcut method to do that as well. I'll come back to that one. The third one is we all insure our cars. We all insure our houses if we're lucky enough to be a homeowner. Insurance companies are the lubrication that helps bad projects get up in Australia. If you cannot insure your massive new coal port, you can't build it. No bank will lend you money if you can't insure it because it might burn down. So you can write to your insurance company and ask why they're insuring or proposing to insure a particularly bad project. They hate it. So that as consumers, we have very good not-for-profits who will deliver us in five minutes of your research time the ability to write to your bank, super fund and insurer and nail them. And I'll guarantee you, I see from my side of the fence, massive change in the industry happening because a small trickle of people are doing that. So please do it. Melbourne-based organisation called Market Forces. If you Google marketforces.org, they will spoon-feed you what your bank is doing in terms of financing um, climate change impact projects. So you do, all you've got to do is look up your bank and they'll tell you how much they lent last year to fossil fuel projects. All you've got to then do is write to your bank and say, hey, Market Forces said you, you lent $10 billion last year to projects that are going to um, really destroy our climate. Could you just explain why that doesn't match all your lovely brochures that say you deeply care for me and society? Why are you doing that? That's all you got to do. And if you have time, once again, to go the extra step, when they write back and give you all the bullshit, tell them you leave and change to a bank that is a market forces list that's not doing that. You will change the world by doing that. And the and the proof is that there is something like 45 banks around the world who have said they will not lend money to Adani's new coal mine. 45 banks have announced they will not lend money to Adani before Adani have asked for the loan. Why would a bank say, I'm not giving a loan when they haven't even asked for one? It's because they're panicked that consumers think they're going to do it. So it's working. That is for the small tripler customers that have already moved, shifted banks, has triggered the banks to announce in advance they're not lending them money. How powerful is that? Super funds. The fastest growing super fund in Australia is an ethical super fund. So the, uh, once again, no one changes super funds. So if you... You go to another not-for-profit website, uh, leafratings.org. They've got every super fund in Australia who claims to have an ethical option. You can see what they're actually investing in and you can decide whether it's genuinely ethical or not. If you're thinking, hey, you're investing in all these coal companies and you tell me it's an ethical fund, um, once again, write them an email. It takes not a lot of effort. Ask them to explain it. Um, that will change their behaviour. If you don't like it, move to a fund that doesn't invest in the companies that you're not happy with. It's that simple. And the third one is the insurance companies. Market forces will tell you which insurance companies are insuring fossil fuel projects. Once again, look up whether it's one of yours, tell them you're not going to insure with them. They don't want to lose your business. So every consumer in Australia has the power to change the finance industry tomorrow. So just get off your butt, send a couple of emails, that's all I ask, but I promise you, if you do that, you will help change the Australian landscape. And actually, there's four things, not three. And the fourth one is the most powerful, but it does require people with a little bit of cash. So there is a wonderful not-for-profit in Canberra called the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, ACCR.org. That not-for-profit with one and a half staff has 
in my 12 years back in Australia, created the most change in bad corporate behaviour out of any other action I've seen in my career. They are wonderful and you can participate. So what they do is um, they round up 100 shareholders in a particular company uh, and a company they consider to be not truthful or doing something wrong or maybe can be improved in the way they help us as a society. If in a, under Australian law, if you have 100 shareholders, you can put a formal uh, question, uh, it's called a resolution, to the shareholders meeting and everyone, every shareholder in that company gets to vote on whether it's a good idea or not. And the corporations hate it. And the reason is that that question, so the question might be, could you please tell me as a shareholder in your company what your business plan is to transition your company from digging up coal? How are you going to continue to make profits in a world where the Paris Accord is put into place? Just tell us whether you've got some business plans and the key points to those business plans. So it's a simple question that the company should have the answer to. So they put the resolution up and say, we want you to have a plan and we want you to let us know next year. The companies hate it because, of course, they don't have a plan, but they've got to put up an official statement to all of their shareholders and, and somehow convince them that they don't need a plan to be written and they don't need to tell their owners about it. So it creates massive change. They, and, and then everyone votes on that. Normally the ACCR loses the vote, but it's the public relations impact that means the companies often end up doing it anyway because they realise it's such a disaster. So um, they have been incredibly powerful to change behaviour for the, Australia's largest polluters, for the big banks, for political donations. They're now doing this year, they're going for the mining companies to ask around their intentions to blow up future Aboriginal caves, uh, whether they think that's a good idea and to insist that they don't. They've attacked BHP and Rio, who are the largest donors, members and donors to the Mineral Councils of Australia who, you know, people say they are the, the one, that they are the organisation behind all the climate change denial that's being put into politicians. So they asked the BHP, asked BHP a couple of years ago, well, you're saying all your lovely brochures that you believe in climate change and you're helping us, you know, do that, but your membership of this organisation is financing climate denial lobbying to politicians. Can you just reconcile why your membership of an organisation that seems to be fighting against what your brochures say? Then through that, the CEO of the Minerals Council of Australia uh, left their job. So ACCR's campaigns are the most powerful way to pr proactively change corporate behaviour in Australia, I believe. So to participate in those, when they have a campaign and call out for shareholders, you need to be willing to buy some of the shares, take the risk that you sell them for a loss later on, and put your name to that... Um, to that resolution. So if you've got a little bit of money to gamble with in a way, um, say $2,000 worth of shares or $500 worth of shares and pay a few stockbrokers some fees, boy, that works. So check that one out too. So there's four ways you can change the finance world tomorrow that are pretty easy to implement. So don't think the industry has to be the evil empire that it's been in the past. You can, you can really change things. We talked about optimism and, and the gloom before, and all of these changes shine through as optimism. So um, I liked that we're um, getting towards the end of this with some optimism in mind because, for, for me especially, because I, I do love um, feeling the grief and understanding the problems but then seeing that there are solutions there. So thank you, Stuart, for that. Where can people find you 
and your company, you know, find more about you, your book as well. What, what can we do to find out more about you and, and the work that you're doing? The book's sort of in its final days. It's three years old now, but uh, I still have some around if, if anyone's interested. Most of the public libraries, I understand, have a copy of it called The Rich Greenie. Um, so you can borrow it from the library. Probably a first preference then. We don't have to print them and use the world's resources. But um, if you are desperate for a copy, uh, there's also a website, The Rich Greenie, where you can order a book online and I'll post it out to you. That talks very much just about aligning the life values and why it's financially sensible to do the right thing by the environment, your family and your time. Things we've talked about today. My, my Hobart-based financial advice company is um, called Taz Ethical. Yeah, we deal with people in Hobart, but there's some very, very good ethical financial advisors in every state around Australia. A decade ago, I founded a co-op where the the specialists in the space we work together loosely to get to attack the super funds and get better products available for people who want good ethical products. Uh, if you look up the Ethical Advisors Co-op, you'll find a, a financial advisor in, in any state in Australia who is specialised in the space, if that's where you need to, want to get advice on, that's, um, that's available as well. Brilliant. And my final question in every podcast is, have you, Stuart, had a moment of clarity either through this conversation or recently that you'd like to share with us today? Wow. Um, yeah, I'm always thinking about these things. So it's um, it's always just an incremental build on what I was thinking about yesterday. And it's so good to talk them through with you because it just aligns, you know, you align these thoughts, realign these thoughts in your brain as you talk to good people about, about what's happening and exchange ideas. No, I don't think there's a new moment of clarity, but it just it reinforces to me that keep going, keep trying and, and keep doing the right thing for good organisations and that all of our efforts are worthwhile, especially volunteering to help change the world. And, yeah, the clarity is that continued clarity that that's the right thing to do and that's what delivers great benefits to society's environment and us as individuals as well. Oh, Stuart, thanks so much for that and thanks for this conversation. It's been amazing. I had a bit of a day where I got told that I looked half asleep at about midday and. Um, now I'm at a point where I'm revitalized and energized again. So I really appreciate the time and and all your lessons have been amazing to to unpack and, and hear about. So really appreciate that. Oh, that's so great, Matthew. It's energized me too. It's it's good talking about ways to change the world and and getting out there and doing it. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.